Welcome to a different type of episode of the Myth That Make Us podcast. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen that I've been doing a lot more Instagram lives recently during the quarantine. And I'm trying to save each of these Q&As. And Instagram is a fickle beast and sometimes they save and sometimes they don't. But when they do save, I'm going to upload them as podcasts for you guys because the questions that you guys are asking are so fucking dope. And there's a lot of, I think, valuable information coming through these Q&As. So this is one of those episodes. You're going to hear the same intro whenever I'm able to release a podcast like this. It's going to allow me to release more podcasts. And I just think that it serves in every way. So hope you guys enjoy. And if you want to be a part of these Q&A when they go down, uh, follow me, uh, pay attention to the stories. I try to do them around 3.30 on days where I don't have either a podcast or some type of coaching call going on. And yeah, um, if you would like to support the podcast, the most direct way that you can do that is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes and then also to share this with anybody that you think that it will bring value to. I love you guys. Thank you so much for the constant support. I fucking love showing up for you guys the way that I get to. And I wouldn't have the, that opportunity if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you. I love you. Namaste. What it do, fam bam. <clears throat> so let's just get right into this. I hope that you guys are doing well. It's been a good day. It's really sunny here in Texas, and that's got everybody in a better mood. <clears throat> but we'll just get right into it. What age did you stop playing video games and why? So I remember when I was 17, I made this pledge to myself that I would never stop playing video games. And I imagined myself being an adult and that I would have all the money that I would need and then I would just sit in this chair and play video games because <clears throat> it was one of my favorite things to do. But I think it was around the time that I started smoking weed and I started doing psychedelics. There was just once, so when I was... 19, I think, um, I started smoking weed. And before I knew who Joe Rogan was, I watched a Joe Rogan stand-up special on Netflix. It's the first one that he's ever done. And <clears throat> he has a joke in there where he starts talking about, we all think that we're smart, but what do we do when the electricity goes out? We all just sit here and we wait and we think, fucking idiots. <clears throat> but what if all the smart people died? Like, who here knows how to make a phone? Who here even knows how to make a fire? And he made a joke like, all of us in here, we would die if all the smart people died. And I was 19, and I just had this come to Jesus moment where I realized I don't know how to do anything. Um, I thought I was the smartest kid because I could out-argue the teacher in front of the class, and that was kind of my, like, that was the thing that I planted my ego on. And at 19, I realized I don't like, I do not know how to do anything. And that was a wake up call for me. And <clears throat> after that moment, it was really hard for me to play video games. I still tried a couple of times, but like, it's, it's really hard for me to justify doing that. But I actually just downloaded Final Fantasy Tactics on my iPad today. <clears throat> and I just played it for like an hour to kind of see how it felt. And I think it's something that if I know I put in a lot of work that day, I can give myself like an hour or two. But like the real game is life, man. Like the real game is life. And when you really connected that, like that's the thing I want to get good at. I don't want to get good at a thing that is an artificial sliver of what real life is. Because if you get good at this game, the rewards are pretty fucking dope. How can you tell if you're ready for ayahuasca? I have felt called, but I am still afraid. Is one ever ready? So what's really interesting is um, if you feel a call, I would say that you're ready. And um, it's, it's one of those things that because you have no idea what ayahuasca is going to be like, you are going to be afraid. But to think that the way to be ready to do something is that you don't feel fear you will never do anything worth doing. Like what you will find if you talk to anyone who's gotten great at something is they will basically tell you a story about how they do the thing that's important to them even though they still feel fear. 
And it's one of the biggest stories that people tell themselves about successful people that keeps them from being successful, where they believe the only way to be successful is to not be afraid. And that's just not the case. All the greatest motherfuckers out there have learned how to act even though they're afraid. And so if you have the call, answer the call, brother. Have you ever written to your back spasms? I'm writing to my chronic illness and it's working. Yeah, so I've talked about this a couple of times, but when I first got into journaling, because I read The Artist's Way, the reason I even found the book and I started to read the book was because I had a back spasm. And the reason I started doing it was to talk to my back spasm. And it is one of the things that helped me heal my back pain. There's this idea that a lot of the chronic pain in the body is not because there's something physically wrong with the structure of your body. It's because there is a repressed emotion and that your body is trying to speak to you through the pain because your fucking thinking mind has just been like, nope, nope. And I find, and there's also amazing research about journaling where they look at what's called expressive writing and that when you do expressive writing, which is when you write four days in a row for 20 minutes about something traumatic that happened in your past, a bunch of physical things start to heal. People with arthritis are, have greater joint mobility. People with asthma have better lung capacity. Um, people who are depressed show less depressive symptoms. People with PTSD show less intense PTSD symptoms. And cancer patients show less pain subjectively in everything. And so there's a deep connection between your emotions and your body's pain. And I think it's a really powerful way to heal that shit. What aspects of your shadow are you still dealing with? <clears throat> yeah, so one of the things in my shadow that's constantly, that has really been activated since this whole thing has started has been like the part of the male psyche that just wants to fucking destroy shit. Like, I don't have a very good connection to that warrior part of me when it comes to physically harming other people even if they're doing something to threaten people that I care about. <clears throat> and it's because growing up, I was taught that any time that I showed aggression, I was just like my dad, and that was never said as a compliment. And so I learned really young that to display aggression was bad, and so it went into my shadow. And it's one of the things that I'm learning to bring forward more because there's a quote from the Bible that says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And Jordan Peterson is a psychologist who went and asked scholars to directly translate the Hebrew. And they said that the translation was, those who have swords but keep them sheath shall inherit the world. And what Jordan Peterson thought that that meant psychologically is, people who are capable of being aggressive but choose to not be aggressive are the most capable type of people. And so that's a part of my shadow that I'm dancing with. And also during this quarantine, I've been watching way too much porn and it's just because I'm at home all fucking day and that's for sure a part of my shadow that I need to contend with. What was your biggest revelation with expressive journaling? Um, truly the biggest revelation with expressive journaling was doing all the research about what it does and finding that when you do it, it heals a bunch of biological things. And when I first found that, like, I wasn't familiar with people like Joe Dispenza, so I wasn't very aware of the mind-body connection. But there are over 300 studies on expressive writing that show that when you do it, a bunch of stuff physically heals. That should, that makes no sense to Western doctors, that if you write for four days in a row about something that really hurts you in your past, that you sleep better, you're less likely to, you will go to the doctor half as many times over the following year as someone else like you who didn't do it. And that blew my mind. And then there's also this thing called bibliotherapy, which is researchers have found that sometimes there can be books that are more effective at healing people's depression than them going and seeing a psychiatrist and being giving anti antidepressants. <clears throat> and so when, when I really thought about that, 
if I could write something or create something powerful enough, it could be more effective at treating people's depression than them paying a bunch of money to go to a doctor to give them medication that they're told they have to take the rest of their life. And if you do that good once, it can scale for your entire life. And so that really inspired me. How do you approach nutrition? So I'm, I'm mostly keto. I basically try not to eat anything that feels like it reduces how well my brain works. And so for me, I tend not to eat sugar, even though I've been fucking around with ice cream during this quarantine. Um, I don't eat candy because it's just like, once you get away from eating candy and drinking soda, when you do, you recognize how fucking sugary it is. And like a part of your body is like, this is not, we have not evolved to have this, this much sugar inside of one thing in our face at the same time. And once you acclimate to eating real whole food, it, it doesn't taste right. Like it tastes like there's something wrong. So whole food, I tend to intermittent fast, which means that after like 8 p.m. I won't eat again until like 1 p.m. the following day. And then I'll eat a bunch of meat, some eggs, avocado, cheese, <clears throat> beef jerky, uh, some nuts and shit like that. And then for dinner, I'll either have something like Chipotle or Thai Fresh because I tend not to cook, but now I'm cooking more because motherfucking lockdown going on. But basically, whole food, <clears throat> low carb to keep my brain doing dope shit. What are some practices to cultivate curiosity? So, um, I don't feel like I have any practices that cultivate curiosity because I genuinely feel like the things that I've chosen to try to master <clears throat> will never be able to be mastered. So I'm literally always interested in learning. Like, it is, it is the truth to say that I have not felt bored in like 10 years because the things that I am interested in are so vast and so big and so deep that it never ends. And one of the things that helps people find their purpose is to articulate to themselves, what is the biggest problem in the world that you are passionate about trying to solve? And when you become really clear on that, especially if it's big, there's never not something to do. And then also, um, I really like asking questions and you know, it's why I ha fucking have a podcast, but when you have the orientation that every single person that you ever meet is a reflection of God and that they truly know something about the universe that if you were able to be aware of would make you a more adaptive human, everyone's interesting, everyone. And you unlock how interesting they are through asking good questions. And so that's why I love to do journal prompts in the weekly email. And it's why I podcast is because humans are endlessly fascinating. And so it comes down to pick the things that you want to get good at and then pick the problem in the world that you want to solve. And then I don't think things ever fucking get boring. Coolest acts of kindness community support that you've seen lately? That's a really good question. Um, the thing that got me really excited is I saw the corporation 3M ship out 500,000 ventilators to New York and Seattle and to some other hospitals in the country. And before that shipment, there were 100,000 total ventilators in the entire country. So they multiply that by five. And basically, when it comes to the virus, where the most deaths are going to happen is that if the metropolitan area where the virus is spreading gets to the point where there's more people who need ventilators than who can get ventilators, that's when the death toll is going to start to get really high. And hearing that a company stepped up, a private company, well, a non-governmental company stepped up and put this out there, like that got me super pumped up. And then also listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast, um, he released an episode a couple of days ago that was like 16 minutes long, but it was all about him calling out companies and the government about ways that he saw they could act most effectively. And to see someone with his type of following doing that type of thinking and then using his platform to direct multi-billion dollar companies and governmental institutions 
to try to solve this problem. Like, that's so fucking dope. It's so dope. And because of the type of people that I follow on Instagram, it's curated, you know, because I, I, I don't follow bullshit. I've only seen positivity. Like, and so I think that that actually skews my bias. And that's why I'm not able to think of a cool thing that somebody that I know is doing because everybody that I know is doing something positive and beautiful with their Instagram platform. So that's been dope. Is there a physical skill you can do that you would love? I'm assuming that I can't do that. I would love to be able to do play the piano to the point where whatever I am feeling, I can just instantly flow into a beautiful song, like to be able to do jazz and just fucking let it go. That's one of the biggest physical skills that I don't have right now that I do want to have. Also to do a handstand would be pretty dope. Do you consider a heroic dose of mushrooms to be five grams? Have you ever taken more? I would consider five grams to be a heroic dose. Um, I don't think I've ever done more than five. I think I've done five grams probably four or five times, and I actually feel called to do five grams this weekend to really just look at the state of the world and kind of see, like, what can I do? Because um, I know that I'm doing a lot, but I also know that I'm not doing as much as I know I'm capable of doing, and I know that uh, the mushrooms will fucking make me look at that real fucking clearly. I can feel that I want to say that I've done seven grams one time, but I can't think of when that was. Um, hmm. No, so I've done five grams a couple of times. For sure, a heroic dose. And uh, be careful out there, y'all. If someone was to write a book about your life, how would you name it? Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, I truly feel like the story of my life is just one-fourth of the way through, and so it's not done. I have no idea what it's going to be. My favorite biography that I've ever read about somebody is called This Timeless Moment, and Aldous Huxley's wife wrote it about him. So to be honest, I would probably like for my biography to be written by my wife because she would know me more clearly than anybody else. And the way Aldous Huckley's wife writes that book, you can feel how in love she is with him and you fall in love with him. And by the time you get done with that book, you're just crying. Side note, Aldous Huxley has probably the dopest death of any human I've ever read about ever. And he was sick with something and he knew that he was dying that day. And he asked his wife to give him 400 micrograms of LSD. She injects it into him. And then as he's dying, a couple of hours after that, peeking on LSD, she is at his bed, holding his hand and whispering into his ear, go into the light. It's okay. Go into the light. It's okay. And it gives me goosebumps. Like that might be the best death that I've ever heard about. And, you know, part of me is like, sign me up for that shit. I would love to go out that way. Is there an age that you would recommend people start experiencing with psychedelics? So one of the things to know about the development of the brain is that your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of you that like does the thinking and the model making and the organizing, what they call executive functioning, it's not fully developed between the ages until you're about 25 to 28. And so I think the the safe recommendation is to wait until your mid-20s to really start shaking up your world model. But I didn't follow that advice. And some of the dopest people I've ever met, they did ayahuasca for the first time with their parents when they were like 10 or 11 or 12. But they're fucking aliens, and that's why they're aliens. The thing that I would recommend is that at least until your early 20s, and that I would honestly recommend that you meditate and learn how to think scientifically and logically to ground you. And then when you feel like you've created that foundation to go start exploring consciously. Um, Yeah, so it comes down to feel into if you feel ready for the call, and then if you do, say yes would be my recommendation. But to recognize that 
The part of your brain that anchors you in reality is not fully developed until you're about 25 or 26. And um, to play with psychedelics too much, too early, might inhibit your ability to ground back into reality. So that's just something worth knowing. Have you been able to induce altered states of consciousness without psychedelics? If so, how? For sure. So the first one is you dream. Dreams are an altered state of consciousness. And once you get obsessed with dreams and you start writing down your dreams and you start interpreting your dreams, you recognize that you have altered states every night and you fucking do it without you even being aware that you're doing it. So that's one thing. A really the most powerful way that I have found to alter consciousness that requires no psychedelics that will take you into a very deep psychedelic space is holotropic breath work. And you can Google this, you can look into like exactly how to do this, but through just using your breath, you could right now, in half an hour, be in a psychedelic state. We all have that access. So holotropic breath work is one. The other one that I love the most is ecstatic dancing, which is basically you create a playlist and there's playlists online that you can find that are like an hour to two to three hours long. And then you just dance. You just let your body do whatever your body wants to do and you will get into a flow state. And then in that flow state is an altered state of consciousness. And that brings you to the third thing. Flow state is an altered state of consciousness. So I alter, I get into an altered state of consciousness every morning when I write. Um, I get into an altered state of consciousness if the sex is really good or if I'm playing a sport and I just find that my body is feeling the rhythm and like one of my favorite feelings I've ever felt in my life is when I'm in flow playing basketball because I feel my ego feels like a god. Like when I'm really in flow, every shot is going in. No matter what somebody does, if the ball leaves my hand, it's going into the hoop and my ego is just like, are you not entertained? And it's one of my favorite feelings. So the three are holotropic breath work, ecstatic dance, and then whatever creative outlet that you have that can give you uh, flow. What's your ideal set and setting for a heroic dose of psilocybin? So, um, dark room, do it alone, unless I'm in the presence of someone that truly feels like a shaman. And I have some people in my life that I feel that way about, but I tend to do it alone. Lights off. Um, I create a playlist that's two to three hours long that has no words, that are songs that I love. And then I lie down. And the intention is I'm not getting up. Because if I move, it's almost always because I'm resisting what's happening in my, in my mind. And so I will lay for three hours in darkness with this music. And then when I'm done, I'll journal. And that's basically how I do it. Any tips to become more eloquent? So what's interesting is one of the most consistent compliments I get now is how well I articulate whatever it is that I'm talking about, but I have a stutter and I had a, a speech impediment so bad when I was a kid that my mom couldn't understand me and my sister had to translate for me to my mom. And I had to go see a speech, a speech psychologist basically when I was in second grade and she had to teach me how to talk. And one of the reasons why I can speak the way that I speak is because my entire life, I've always been able to feel when the stutter was coming on what word. And so I would have to start to think about alternate words to say that would be a, a different physical movement in my mouth so I wouldn't stutter. I also had to learn to talk more slowly because if I get really excited, I will almost for sure stutter. And so I've had to learn how to talk slowly and how to feel what the next word is. And I think when it really got good is when I started doing the podcast. And so a really amazing practice is start a podcast, like not even to fucking get big, like start a podcast with the intent on, I want to learn how to speak and I want to learn how to ask people good questions. And then if you don't care about how the podcast does, you can just interview anyone you want. It's amazing. You don't have to even say how many people listen to your podcast and you can fucking email somebody who you have no business talking to and ask them, do you want to be interviewed for this podcast? And a lot of people just fucking say yes. Like, 
my first podcast that maybe at the most had 300 people listening to it. I got on a world famous psychologist because I emailed him. I just asked him, do you want to come on the podcast? And he said, yes, he didn't fucking ask how big the audience was or whatever. (laughs) And so you get good at something by forcing yourself to do it. And if you want to be more eloquent, force yourself to talk. And if you want to put pressure on the talking, do it publicly. That's basically what it comes down to. What is your process to ensure that what you read stays in your head? So, you know, I've, I've been reading for an hour or two hours a day since I was maybe 17. And so a part of it is just the fact that I've been doing it for a long time. But, like, because I'm actively thinking about how I can teach what I am reading in a way that is useful to people, it forces me to digest the information in a way where, like, I have to contend with it. And my degree is in cognitive psychology, which is how the brain processes information. So I took classes on how to learn. Like, in college, I learned how to learn. And what, like the two, mo- the two most powerful ways to really understand whatever it is that you're reading is you teach it and you create tests from it. And so what that means is like I create tests to myself by writing blog posts about it. <clears throat> and the way that I am is I want to teach the people that I know whatever it is that I just learned. So all my roommates that I've ever had they probably know more about psychology than a lot of psychology majors who didn't go on and do grad school because I forced them to listen to me talk about what I read that day. And they kind of love it and they kind of hate it because it's, it's always spewing out of me. But the two most powerful ways that you can learn something is to teach it and then to test yourself over it. And then to add to that, Um, Every book that I read, I create an Evernote document for that book and I write down any quote that I like and then I write down any idea that I like in my own words, in the Google Doc. And I almost never go back and read the Google Doc, but the act of writing it embeds it deeper in me. And then to write it in my own words embeds even deeper than that. And the last thing is, if you really want to understand what it is that you're reading, have a model in your head about what you think it is that they're talking about. And every time that you read, it's like you're taking a Lego piece and you're adding it to your Lego piece to see if it makes sense. And you're just constantly doing that, you know, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Biggest lesson that you've learned from Carl Jung? God damn, I don't even know how to answer that question. Um, probably the biggest thing is that dreams are a part of you that is more intelligent than your conscious mind trying to communicate to you every day to help you manifest your potential I think that's probably that's one of the biggest ideas the other idea that is the biggest that I can feel almost no one that I talk to really gets it and it's my fault for not being able to articulate it well enough but What I'm about to say is going to feel like a cliche, but the truth is almost no one that I know actually perceives the world this way because of the way that they speak shows that they don't. And even I forget this all the fucking time, but it's that if something happens in your psyche, it is as real as if it were a quote unquote scientific reality. And so what that means is that if you have the feeling that there's something in the room that is as real as you measuring an atom, but only for you, only for you. And the deeper philosophical point there is, is that anything that you ever experience, period, is a phenomena arising inside of your psyche. And you don't have access to the quote unquote objective world. You can only make models of the objective world with your psyche. And then there's everything that your psyche experiences that is as real to you subjectively as the model of reality that you have that you call the objective world. And so one of the ideas, and it's one of the deep mystical truths that's in every tradition, is that anything that happens outside of your body, quote unquote, that you think is outside of your body, 
is actually happening inside of you. Like the phone that you're looking at right now feels like it's outside of your body. And on one level, there is a phone or there is a condensation of vibrations and energy outside of your physical body right now that's emanating vibrations. But your perception of the phone is literally a creation that you are making in your psyche interpreting the vibration that is coming from your phone. We only have that is your internal model of everything. So when I say the word universe or star or planet or space, whatever conception you have in your mind is literally something that you have made up from interpreting vibrations that are hitting your body. And that's one of the deepest spiritual truths that I forget all the time, but that Jung talked about all the time. And also what's interesting is I feel called to start reading the collected works. I'm actually charging my Kindle today and I'm going to start doing it tomorrow because I started going through the notes that I've made from when I read like the first half of his collected works and just the fucking fire of the quotes that he wrote. Like it's still so pertinent today. And so I'm feeling called to get back into that because, you know, he's he's a motherfucking guy. In a technological world, why should one sit down with a physical book? I mean, should is the wrong word. You shouldn't, but if you want to, do it. I love the way a book feels in my hand. And um, there's also something, I saw a great meme, but it's like Apple has now invented a iPad that never runs out of battery, that disables all other communication from being able to get to you, and is waterproof, and it's called a book. And whenever we do anything that's on a screen, you have to recognize that your body did not evolve to interact with the screen. Your body evolved to interact with the quote-unquote physical world. And when you read a book, I'm more likely to get into a flow state than if I read a screen because there's nothing else coming at me. And so... I love books, but there's no reason why you should. If you don't want to, don't, you know? How were you first introduced to Ram Dass? Um, I think I was first introduced to Ram Dass by studying um, Timothy Leary, who I found through Robert Anton Wilson. And um, But I think I really got into Ram Dass when I started getting to Alan Watts because I think he just showed up on YouTube. But Ram Dass is one of the fucking, he is one of my favorites. And I find when life is the most uncomfortable, for whatever reason, I cannot help but go listen to Ram Dass. What I've noticed in the last two years is that when my life has been the hardest, when something has been going on where I felt the lowest, listening to Ram Dass's lectures, especially from like the 60s when he was really just fucking on it, um... It soothes me because it's the fucking truth. Like, like it's it's so good. Ram Dass is the motherfucking guy. From your perspective, what is the spiritual message behind this chapter that we are navigating through? So this is a really interesting thing that um, I notice a lot of spiritual people doing, which is we want to make a story out of what is happening so we can understand it. And the truth is, I don't know. Um, but the couple of stories that are arising in me, one of the stories is the part of me that is an egomaniac who truly believes like when I'm not pretending to be small, what I can feel that I'm capable of being, there's this part of me that's like, duh, you chose to live in a time when something like this would happen, that the potential inside of you did not choose to come into a body to learn how to use a credit card right to have a good credit score and to learn how to drive the most effective route to get to work quickly and how to have the best insurance. No, the soul that you are came into this world to fucking experience something deep and real. So there's a part of me that's like, duh, motherfucker, like you're a hero. Of course you're going to face a real dragon. So that's one story, but I recognize it's a story. Like, it's a story to give me 
motivation to show up. There's this other story that Mother Earth is trying to heal herself and that the animals on this planet that have been causing the most pain, Gaia, the god, the mother god that is Earth is like, I've got to fucking slow these bitches down. And again, that's a story. I don't know if that's true. It's one way to interpret what's happening. Um, another really interesting story that I heard Duncan Trussell and Joe Rogan talk about on their podcast it's, is that there's a battle going on and the battle is between the spirit that is artificial intelligence and the spirit that is Mother Earth and that they both need humans in order to win the war and that Mother Earth needs humans to basically heal her and take care of her and protect her and AI needs humans to create its body. Like on one level, what we're doing with technology is we're creating the body for AI to come into. And so that's a really interesting story. But again, it's a, it's a story. And I just, I think that jumping to any of those things too quickly is so we don't have to deal with the fact that we're in uncertain times. And, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to say, I don't know. Is capitalism the best system that humans have for a large population? There's a great quote, and I forget who it's by, and it's that capitalism sucks, but it's the best system that we've been able to create. And one of the things to recognize is that humans' attempts to create a, a societal system from scratch, when implemented, has caused massive deaths. The thing about capitalism is there's lots of things that are wrong with capitalism. Let me be very clear. It can be much better. But it seems to arise out of human nature and that we all have this intrinsic psychological architecture where if someone does something good for us, we want to repay them to feel energetically neutral. There's a, really, there's a whole bunch of research on this, but if someone does a favor for you, psychologically, there's this part of you that feels that you owe them and that there's something that you want to do to equalize the value exchange so you can release the psychological tension of feeling like you owe them. And that capitalism seems to be an extension of that. Now, the bureaucracy and the technicalities of how it unfolds in the world can be better. But I think that we haven't come up with a better model. And the attempts to create a, a model simply from the mind to be logical when it was implemented didn't go well because it didn't vibe with our evolutionary biology. And I think whatever system that we're going to create, because capitalism can be better, it's going to have to flow with evolutionary biology because that's how we're wired. So it's a big topic. What is the optimal human story to live by? I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out, man. Um, but the best model that I have found so far in my life is the hero's journey. And I think that um, the best way that you can explore the hero's journey is to read um, Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell and then recognize that all of your favorite movies ever are the hero's journey. And if you can start to map out and see the stages that Joseph Campbell lays out on your favorite movies, it will connect with you in a way that is much more visceral that then you can then use when you get into a hard situation. Like you can think about like, what's your favorite movie? Think of the protagonist. What would they do right now? What would they do in this situation? And that can guide you through all of your things. I always lose track on what my purpose is when I'm around people. Any tips? That's a good question. So, um, hmm. without knowing the details of who you are and what the situation is, I don't think I can get too deep. But one thing that you can do is you can look back on the last six months and you can actually write down the top five times in the past five or six months that you felt you most lost track of your purpose and who you were around. And then write down the people that you tend to be around when you quote unquote forget and recognize. 
these people are probably people that expect me to act a certain way and probably to ingest a certain drug that, in, that lowers my consciousness state. And then I go along with what they expect from me. And you have two choices. One is you can cultivate greater awareness that when you go hang out with these people, that you are responsible for what you choose to do. Or step two is the AA approach is you remove yourself from that environment until you've cultivated the awareness and the discipline to be in that space and to not succumb. Now, a third option is to recognize you don't always have to fucking be a hero with a sword out being like, this is my purpose, you know, and this is something that I struggle with. And you can consciously choose to go revel in the Bakian drunkenness if if that's what you choose to do that night and you know that it will probably affect you the next two days um also like it sounds like if you lose track of your purpose it means that you know what your purpose is write it down write it down as a sentence and have it be something that you say to yourself every morning until it's fucking etched on the surface of your heart you know um it's hard for me to understand what it feels like to forget your purpose, to be honest. So I don't think I can be a very good guide there, to be frank. Are you happy that you did ayahuasca when you had the chance? Um, 100%. And it's, it's one of the most transformative experiences that I've ever gone through. And when you had the chance implies that there won't be chances anymore. There will be. Um, this is going to be tough for a couple of weeks, maybe six to eight weeks, but eventually it's going to let up. You will have opportunities to do ayahuasca again for sure. What happened between you and your most recent romantic prospect? Um, basically, I tend to show up pretty intensely, and what that means is um, you guys probably like how well that I'm able to uh, articulate psychological stuff. And it's because there's a part of me that is a psychoanalyst that is always doing that to everything always. And my romantic prospects, when we start to get close, they're really attracted to it at the beginning, but then they recognize like, oh shit, this dude's really gonna see me. And my most recent romantic prospect, basically the way that it played out is she wasn't ready. She didn't feel that she was worthy or ready to say yes to this type of intimacy. And it was tough because I could feel the potential that was there, but you know, you can't force it. And so I just got to keep doing the damn dance. Not being able to perform your dream in your dreams, check your DMs. I will check my DMs, but I'm not going to be able to answer this now. How often do you go back and read your journal entries? Um, I don't. I don't go back and reread my journal entries. Uh, one of the key, so the type of journaling that I do is called expressive writing, or it's, it's called, yeah, it's basically expressive writing, but it's stream of consciousness where you don't edit anything. You don't ever reread it and you don't show it to anybody else so that you can be the most honest that you are probably ever when you are using language. And so I don't reread my journal, so I know that I'm not performing for the person that I think I'll be in the future when I reread it. Tips for distinguishing in intuition from ego. Almost always, if the inner voice, when you hear it, instantly feels good, like it feels like, oh yeah, I want that, it's probably your ego. If it's your intuition, your instinctual reaction to it is almost like, it's, it's either fear. For me, I'm at the point where it's like, fuck, okay, I have to go do that now. Like, it's not ever something that I'm, that I'm like, yeah, I wanna go fucking do that. It's almost always scary and challenging because the soul is always seeking to grow and to the ego, growth feels like pain or danger or fear. And so one of the things that you can recognize is that if the inner voice is either inflating or deflating the ego, it's the ego. And if the thing coming in is this calm like statement about something to do, that also scares you, almost always intuition. 
the ego will either seek to inflate you or to deflate you so you don't have to confront something. And the intuition is almost always a command to go confront something that you're afraid to confront. When do you look at a cathedral, what do you see? <sighs> I fucking see God made manifest through man. Um, when I look at cathedrals, I see... So the really interesting thing about cathedrals is they were one of the only structures that were built at that time that required multiple lifetimes of people to build. And so it wasn't an economic thing. It was a spiritual thing. And when I look at cathedrals, I see God made manifest through man. And it's one of the most inspiring things that I think exists in the Western world. And a part of what I want to do with my life is I want to travel to every major cathedral and do drugs and either look at it or go inside it. So just going to let you guys know that. What was the book name for the story with the guy dying on acid? This Timeless Moment by, I forget her name, but her last name is Huxley, but it's called This Timeless Moment or In a Timeless Moment. If, if you Google Timeless Moment Aldous Huxley, you'll find the name of the book. And I'm sorry I don't remember the wife's name because she's a great writer. Do you have a dream you dream on repeat? So what's interesting is recurring dreams tend to happen if you're not hearing the message of what the dream is trying to articulate to you. And in my life, I, or at least in the last couple of years, I have not had a recurring dream. Um, when I was a kid, my most common recurring dream was I was driving up a mountain and I was in a car and I was in the passenger seat. And then I would eventually look over and see that there was no one in the driver's seat. And those dreams were recurring when my parents were getting a, a divorce and my psyche could feel that my dad was leaving. And it's like my psyche was telling me, like, there's nobody driving now. You know, like, you got to fucking drive. And I had that dream a lot. Any specific method for recording and unpacking dreams? The book to read is called Inner Work by Robert Johnson. That's the best practical book that I have found so far that teaches people how to do the Jungian type of dream interpretation. Basically, my flow is because I've been doing this for so long, the moment I wake up, if I have a dream that I can remember, it just, I tend to either remember it right away or I'll write about it. Like I, I have enough people in my life who are now obsessed with dreams that I'll just text them the dream. And so it's embedded there and I just go back and I reference it. But I'm kind of at the point now that when I have a dream, I can wake up and I either know what it meant right away or if I don't know what it meant right away, by the time that I text it to somebody, as I'm texting it, I'm like, oh. Um, but what I would recommend is have your phone next to your bed because you're already addicted to it. It's already there all the time. Have the voice memo app on the home app. And the moment you wake up, the first thing you do, grab that phone, click that app, and just start talking about whatever it is that you remember. Um, I find that trying to like turn on a light and actually write on a notepad, I just won't do it because it feels like it's too much work. Um, but yeah, I would recommend that you get that book. Do you read or study any occult esoteric topics? Um, not really. Most of my exposure to that comes from reading Jung because Jung is the motherfucking father of a lot of those ideas. Not really the father, but he gets into all of those ideas. And I think the most esoteric practices or bodies of knowledge are trying to get you to see the world the way that Jung already sees the world. And so by studying Jung, I feel like I'm learning the reality tunnel that these esoteric systems through their own way are trying to teach you about how to see the world. And a lot, a lot of it comes down to that core principle I talked about earlier on this live, which is everything that is arising in your consciousness is actually a product that you are producing within your psyche. And you have a tremendous amount of power over how much you can alter that. Um, but yeah, I haven't really specifically gotten into most of that. How do you let go of judging people and myself in conversation? 
Never, pres- never present and socializing isn't as enjoyable. So the way that I approach conversations is I see every person that I am talking to as someone who could potentially teach me about the nature of the psyche. And so my disposition is I want to ask questions. And because I'm genuinely interested in understanding how they see the world, because I feel like it genuinely feeds my highest purpose, I'm not judging them because I'm actively trying to learn. Like if you're judging a book while you're reading it, you're not going to learn shit. But if you can be open to, okay, how is this book presenting the world? And then you're just curious. Um, That's one thing. And I think discernment is different than judging. Discernment is to see something clearly and judgment is to label it and then put an emotion on it that kind of removes it out of you. And so the way to not be self-conscious about yourself in a conversation is to not think about yourself. And the way to not think about yourself is to be genuinely curious about the other person. Like every person you ever meet, we are all artists. And we have literally created our worldview. And everyone you meet, you have the potential to see the world that they've created if you can listen and ask good questions. And so it's really easy when you have that disposition that there's basically a God in front of you who has created a universe. And the only way for you to learn about it is to listen and to ask questions. Everybody's interesting. And if you really are interested, you're not self-conscious. How to avoid being destabilized by psychedelics? Um, There's a couple of ways. So the first thing is the world model that I have that's deeply influenced by Jung is that everything that happens in a psychedelic experience is like a dream. It's a symbolic message from your psyche. I think a lot of people get fucked up because they have a psychedelic experience and they think it tells them something about the objective world that is fact. And it's why I recommend it if you're going to do psychedelics, learn how to think like a scientist and learn how to think like a philosopher, not to hide in there, but to use those two models of the world to test whatever ideas you feel you're bringing back from a psychedelic experience. Because a lot of people will take a psychedelic and then will have some experience and then they use that experience as a way to like be to put themselves above people. And it's an ego game. And to to recognize that whatever is happening in the psychedelic experience is a symbolic message from your psyche to you, to you. And it's your responsibility to understand what it means and then to figure out how to act it out in the world. You know, um, and not trying to tell anybody else from your psychedelic experience how they should be. I think that that's a big thing to anchor to. Um, And then also, like, take breaks. Like, I will only do a deep psychedelic experience maybe once every three months. Um, And I think people who do it a lot, they're probably running from something in their world, in their actual life. So those are the two things that I would recommend is to know, is to anchor to the knowing that whatever arises in the psychedelic experience is a symbolic message from your psyche to you. And then two, learn how to think like a scientist. So when you bring back these ideas, you can test them within the scientific model, because the truth is the scientific model is a model of how to think. And it's probably the best model that we've ever come up with, with how to discern what is happening in the objective world because we have not evolved to perceive the objective world. We have to teach ourselves how to perceive the objective world through the shadows that come through our meat suit. Is it possible to come out of a psychedelic experience worse than when you went in? 100%. Uh, Psychedelics are not all good. Um, it's, It's basically like If you're gonna take a psychedelic, your conscious mind is like a boat and you are choosing to take on water from the unconscious. And if if you don't have a solid boat, probably stupid to take on extra water. 
if you're not skilled at navigating your boat, probably stupid to take on extra water. If you're already lost at sea, probably stupid to take on extra water. But if you have learned how to sail your boat and your boat is strong enough and you want to go explore, I highly recommend it. I deeply recommend it. Um, and then there's also ways to do it that are fucking stupid. Like if you are going to take four grams of mushrooms at a concert, snort ketamine, do molly, that probably isn't actually MDMA, that's some type of um, methamphetamine, and you get lost and you don't know where your friends are and the music sucks, like you're probably not going to turn out better. Now, of course, there are plenty of people that have God awakening moments, even in those type of situations, but approaching it with sacredness, I think is one of the best ways that you can approach doing a psychedelic where you're not worse coming out and like do your research. Like there's so many amazing resources online about how to approach psychedelics in a way that can heal you and transform you. But of course you can, you can take a psychedelic and be worse off. Have you read meditations by Marcus Aurelius and does it resonate with you? I read it when I was younger and it was one of those books that I read because I felt like I should have read it. Um, and it's dope, but it's that way of seeing the world is not something that I have to remind myself of. So I don't, I feel myself not think about it often. Um, so yeah, I've read it. It was dope, but it's not something that I think about because it's not the type of message that I personally need. The day after I cut my long hair, I went through a lot of transformation. Coincidence? No. Um, everything that we do on some level is a symbolic act. And our actions are showing our psyche where we're at. And when we do something physically that is a symbolic act of transformation, our psyche is like, fuck yeah, let's go. We've been waiting. Um, so any act that you do in your life that's a symbolic testament that you're ready for a transformation, buckle the fuck up. What would you recommend for a sexual block? I lost my drive after some sexual trauma. So if it's coming from trauma, I would recommend expressive writing, which is you set a timer for 20 minutes and you write stream of consciousness about the traumatic experience for four days in a row with the intent of understanding it as a complete story. And just doing that will probably release a lot of stuff. And then without getting into, because I don't know the details of what you're talking about, if you can find a partner that you can cultivate conscious communication with, explain to them what your traumas are and where they're at, and then slowly start to get into that sexual space with them. And if you can experience it without shame from them, if they can reflect back at you that it's not shameful, you'll start to heal. But again, because I don't know the details, I can't give more than that, but great question. What would you recommend to ground yourself back in reality after psychedelics? Workout is one of the best ways to get back in your body. Tobacco is actually used by most indigenous cultures to bring people back into their body directly after doing a psychedelic. It's a part of the ayahuasca tradition in South and Central America. So tobacco is used for that. Um, anything that forces your body to like move and pump blood. So working out, cold showers, saunas. Um, and then also having a conversation with someone that you love. Like... Jung talked about when he was in the period of his life when, when he was the most unstable that treating his clients and loving his family were the ways that he anchored himself back into reality. I'm an overthinker at its finest and want your thoughts on people who overthink. What are the pros and cons? Yeah, so I am for sure that too. Um, I am an overthinker. The, the thing that helped me the most was to study pragmatic philosophy. Um, basically, what pragmatic philosophy is about is <clears throat> you can't know the objective world 
all you can know are basically hypotheses for what will make you more adaptive. And so the central question in pragmatic philosophy is, if so, then what? And what that means is, whatever the idea that you're thinking about, if it's true, what will you do? What action do you do? Um, and when you ask that question, at least for me, it actually kills a lot of thoughts. Because if the thought isn't even something that could change my behavior, it's not useful. It's, it's not doing, it can't do any good for me because it wouldn't manifest in my life as an action. Um, and then if it does manifest in your life as an action, you go run the experiment. You go test the idea. I just saw a thing from Gary Vee, which was actually wise and dope. And it was, don't think about the strategy, do the strategy. One of the quickest ways to stop thinking about something stupid is to go do it and then to see that the world's response to it is that didn't work. And you're like, oh, that doesn't work. So the way that you alchemize overthinking is by doing. Um, we're at the end of this. That hour went by really quick. I love you guys. Thank you for the amazing, dope questions. Um, sorry I couldn't get to all of them, but I hope this helped. I love you guys, and I'm a motherfucking steezy.